0: Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network,
1: supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. In this podcast series, we've talked about how our origins inform our leadership, about some of the skills we need to show up as ourselves and reach out to others across our differences, and about how we make use of our identities in ways that are meaningful. This episode is about all those things. In this episode, we introduce Kathy from the Hearts of Gold Project. Here she is, being the auntie to herself as she navigates the tenure track.
2: Mostly people telling me no. So that's been my assistant professor approach. You get a lot of advice, but some of the advice they have is sit in the corner and don't say much. Well, I don't have time for that. And if they didn't want to tenure me as I am, then I probably didn't want tenure here anyway. So I'm going to be me. I'm going to do what I do. And they're going to deal. And that's probably been my attitude since high school. You can ask my parents (laughs) about that.
1: I need to clarify here. Just as we talked about in the Be the Auntie episode, Kathy doesn't mean that she crashes around just being herself, regardless of her surroundings, or, in this case, the norms, requirements, and culture of academia. While Kathy is able to say, if they didn't want to tenure me as I am, then I probably didn't want tenure here anyway, she is still navigating one of the longest probationary periods in the workforce. So Kathy makes strategic use of who she is. As an example of that, here she talks about strategies she uses to be the bridge when she speaks to other scientists about broadening participation.
2: So when you're asking that question, what I hear too is the scientific belief that if you show me the data, I will change my ways and I will do the better thing. And we know with teaching practices that that's not true. So we have data that the way they're teaching is not helping students learn, but then other excuses come on the table. So I think that what I try to do is change the conversation. So if they want to talk about data and numbers, then I say, but it's more than data and numbers and the data and numbers aren't really the thick of it it's really easy to talk about diversity issues with somebody else who shares your language and shares your base understanding, then you have this give and take, and you can get to new places. It's really hard when you start a conversation with somebody who's in a completely different world. So what I often try to do is move away from data and numbers and, and try to talk about these other things that we don't say. The challenge is that In the end, we do want the data and the numbers to move. So I don't want to let go of that, but there's such a focus on numbers and percentages that we lose all the other stuff. So maybe I'm a little too heavy with let's not worry about the numbers and let's not worry about the control experiment. And let's make the world better for who we have in front of us. I mean, that could be my role at the bottom of the chain. I'm not going to change the percentages at my institution because I I don't have the power to do that. I have the power to change the conversation to not looking at numbers. It's probably my own mindset, but also a, a reality of where my position is. I don't think about percentages, data, numbers on that large scale. I think about people and environments and climate right here for us in my department.
1: Kathy's talking about very conscious and deliberate strategy related to bridging different perspectives and conversations to make change. And she's doing that informed by an identity. In this case, the identity of being a junior faculty member. Kathy, like most assistant professors, thinks a lot about what that means and what she can do from her place at the bottom of the chain in the academic hierarchy. As our interview with Kathy progressed, we named this capacity to make strategic use of one's identity, experience, and environment, a pattern we saw in all our interviews, as code switching. The term comes from the field of linguistics and was originally used to describe the practice of alternating use of two or more languages in a single discourse. Its use has evolved and now it also refers to modifications to appearance and behavior, often with an emphasis on the survival strategies we use to fit into a dominant culture or environment. We extended the meaning of code-switching in these interviews to describe the ways that our broadening participation leaders made use of identity and situations to make change in their environment. This kind of social code-switching, the kind designed to make impact rather than to protect, could be mistaken for a business book kind of strategy. Know your audience, create buy-in to your ideas, sell yourself effectively, a how-to-win-friends-and-influence-people kind of thing. In a seminar, Kelly and I ran on this topic with the whole leadership group, not just those we interviewed. We asked them to break down the component pieces of code switching, and this conscious and deliberate component was quickly named. Darren expands the conversation, pointing to the interwoven influences of authenticity and identity.
2: I think authenticity and self-worth is really important because you've also got to realize which audience you can relate to and which you can't. I have my own set of experiences, and I know the audiences that I could really relate and empathize with. There are others I just cannot. So and that's recognition of, of who you are.
1: So it's not just who you are talking to, it's who you are. And as Laura points out here, being who you are comes with other considerations.
3: I would say that um, vulnerability is something to think about. I think that whether we can bring our whole selves into a situation depends both on the privilege we can lean on in that situation and our ability to be vulnerable and also in some places the importance of also caring for ourselves and keeping ourselves safe. So I think that it could be interpreted that you should be bringing your whole self in, and I would say that there are many instances in my life where I do not, because of strategic decisions about these vulnerability issues.
1: Let's go back now to Kathy. Kathy talked a lot about how she consciously made these choices about where to bring her whole self in and how to navigate her vulnerability. Here she talks about how she navigates credibility regarding her areas of expertise. A big part of being a
2: leader is saying it's okay that you don't know and that you're you're trying your best. I'm not confident to stand up to say, I know this, but I'm I'm learning about the right times to pick battles and productive ways to enter conversations. I think the credibility comes with the way that you approach the topic. So I can't come up and say that I've read everything there is to read and research or that I've done research in this area that's seminal and I'm an expert, which is usually what I would think of as giving credibility. But usually I know much more than the people in the room. So I'm at least bringing something new to the table. If there was another expert in the room, I would defer to that person. But if I'm in a room full of scientists who haven't had any training, then I know considerably more than they do. So I bring that. And that gives me credibility in that space. So I guess it depends what space I'm in, where my credibility comes from.
1: And here Kathy talks about how she addresses difficult conversations.
2: I don't know that it's a conscious decision that I've made. It just tends to be the way that I am. I don't start fights with people. I have my ways of softening the blow of what I'm saying, but I'm going to say it. And so my hope is that if I'm in the elevator with you and you say something that I think is crazy, I'm not going to call you crazy. I'm not going to write a novel about why I think you're wrong, but I'm going to try to say something that's going to move you into a direction where I think that we can communicate better on this topic. And then the next time I talk to you, I'm going to expect that we can move more. So uh, I am firm and I am the way that I am, but I'm also not confrontational.
1: Reading the room, humble enough to relinquish expert status at the drop of the hat, bold enough to claim it when she can, careful to maintain relationship even as she challenges it. These skills go beyond winning friends and influencing people. Here Kathy tells us where she thinks these skills came from in her.
2: So when I have conversations about teaching, a lot of the times I'm talking to people who've taught for 20 years and they are very confident in what they do. And they tell me, oh, I do all lecture all the time, but I'm a very skilled lecturer. I know that all of that information transfer isn't good for student learning, but I can't just come in and say, well, you're wrong. Your 20 years of experience are wrong. And this is what we know. And I think that's where I developed that skill and talking to faculty as a grad student and trying to move them in the direction I wanna go. And then also seeing my advisors use that role where there'll be a group of STEM faculty talking about how they teach and they really pick the times where they are gonna challenge. Well, you know that's not the experience it is for students. So I think I'm, I learned from that and then I use that approach with the diversity as well.
1: But one of the signature qualities of code switching, reaching back even to its linguistic roots, is the internalized and integrated ability to seamlessly weave together different reference points. The ability to pick one's battles, frame arguments, and read the room are not enough to capture this quality. As we continue to talk with Kathy, we dug deeper into this practice of code switching. Here's Kelly beginning to put the pieces together.
3: You're also bringing up some key qualities that are respected in directness, boldness, um, the sense that, you know, I don't mean this in a negative way with you, but because I said it, because I said so, that makes it right. And you kind of straddle both sides of that fence between being characteristically what we usually hang our hat on in STEM and, and those characteristics that people need in order to survive in certain disciplines. And I'm thinking about some disciplines where graduate students are trained to be able to withstand like harsh critique when you're giving a presentation. Like you don't graduate unless you can take somebody bullying you while you are up there and you learn then how to do that when other people are speaking. So there are certain disciplines where being direct and a bully and, and the like is valued. And then at the same time, you also have these traits that aren't necessarily appreciated in STEM around, you know, lived experience and vulnerability and humility. And I don't know if that is what gives you Credentials, and I don't mean those aspects themselves, but that they live in the same person and that you pull them out at will and that you've got all of this at your disposal. You know, Diana, perhaps this is another characteristic that we've not talked about, but is it that someone has both the characteristic STEM credentials and the uncharacteristic STEM credentials and draws from each moment? by moment in doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work.
1: And here are the three of us struggling to name the specific moments and ways that we saw this deeper process we're calling code switching emerge. I was so fascinated that when I asked you, Kathy, if you were able to be vulnerable, if that was one of the risks, basically, you were able to take about being you out in an academic setting that's not necessarily valuing vulnerability, that the description of vulnerability that you put out there was one that was, well, I will be direct. I will say something when I'm thinking about it. And it's true that is a kind of vulnerability, but you spoke it in a way that was switched to the code of what would be valued in STEM, of the directness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so to have both of them and help people understand how vulnerability is not just me crying, it might be some mm-hmm. days, but it's also me telling you actually what I think.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that's a huge vulnerability with pre-tenure, I think. You're not supposed to say what you think, especially if it's not just agreeing with everybody.
3: I think it's fascinating. I, I really do. And to have sat here and seen that authentically, come out in you. It's been fascinating to to watch. Like just in this little two minutes.
2: Like that's incredible. If you were talking about code switching and you know, you painted it so nicely as if I lovely navigate the space. (laughs) But uh, it's not that clean. You know, you say something and then you get a funny look from somebody else in the room and you think, whoops, too far that direction. (laughs) And you Uh, So being willing to see that. Oops, too far that direction.
1: You painted it so nicely as if I lovely navigate the space. It's not that clean. That is the difference between strategy to create buy in and code switching. Code switching is embedded, ephemeral, and part of the messy process of being who we are, not just what we do. But it bears repeating that we're not just talking about code switching for survival here. Here's how we summarize the difference between code-switching for survival and code-switching for change at that seminar Kelly and I led on this topic. When code-switching gets talked about out in the world, it tends to be a description of how people navigate a status quo. There are multiple languages, and I switch use of those languages as I am communicating with someone. Or there are multiple expectations of me and I switch my presentation of myself in order to navigate those expectations. You know, there's a podcast on race and identity called Code Switch. There's a blog entry from the folks that run that one. And they talk about five reasons that people code switch. And they talk about doing it just out of pure survival, the lizard brain kicking in and I need to figure out what's going on and how to navigate this space. They talk about doing it because we want to fit in or because we want to get something or get access to something. Sometimes you code switch to drop a secret message to people who can understand your code and then we sometimes do it just because One language or one experience fails at expressing a thought. And so we need to switch to a different code, a different language, a different set of reference points to even convey a thought. Whether I was looking at the dictionary or whether I was looking at these descriptions, it was all about here's the status quo and how do we navigate it. And it made me realize, Kelly, that what you and I heard when we were doing the interviews is code switching for our better selves and a better world. It wasn't just a survival tool. It wasn't just a communication tool. It was, I'm going to stand on the boundaries, and I'm going to look there, and I'm going to look there, and I am going to help you people see over there. I'm going to help shorten the bridge or build out the bridge or whatever it is. I'm going to help, like, redraw the entire landscape not just the people that come in, but the people that were already in that space, the nature of the space they've been in changes. The nature of the space they've been in changes. Once Kelly and I named this form of code switching, we saw it all over our interviews. Wendy code switches to bridge the different types of knowing and knowledge and to make it possible for the next generation of Native scholars to succeed in the academy. Carolyn code switches as she roots in her astrophysicist identity to take her one shot at gaining the confidence of scientists to consider the importance and relevance of diversity, equity, and inclusion to their work. Corey code switches as he challenges his students and colleagues to make real connections with communities so that science addresses problems meaningful to and informed by the people who live them. Darren code switches as he translates his lived outsider experience into a leadership style capable of bringing together a truly diverse team. Grady code switches as he works with students, remembering his own 20 year old self. And Mary code switches as she creates a leadership space, inevitably gendered, navigating between the rock of being thought of as a mouse and the hard place of being called a bitch. Kelly said it best. It's the complexities that live within the same person, the straddling of multiple realities, and the ability to pull them each out at will, moment by moment, as the moment requires, that is a hallmark of leading broadening participation. And yes, that's not a clean process. As Kathy said, you have to be willing to see when you've gone, whoops, too far that direction. You have to keep learning and adjusting to the changing landscape around you. But like the cyclical nature of code switching itself, that's not the final word either. Here's a final segment of our conversation with Kathy. Part of the challenge with code switching is that you need to be someone who can challenge the status quo without being ejected from it. Wow. Ah. And that's not the only approach, like I'm a big believer in the approach that is challenging the status quo from the outside or with the intent of dismantling it because it's time for that change. But there's this other kind of change process that's profound, that's, no, I'm using my insider status to now question it.
2: And the hard part of that is not getting sucked into the status quo. That's easy to be indoctrinated.
1: So, code switching for change can't just be adjusting to the external. It requires being ever vigilant to the ways the external is pressing back on you. We're going to take one more look at code switching in this episode by returning now to Eric from the last episode. You may recall that Eric is an associate professor who told us in the Identity episode that he falls in the privileged category on a long list of social identities. Much of what we've looked at so far, and certainly Kathy's story, focused on code switching for change in response to the privilege or power of others. Eric spoke from the opposite place, code switching for change from within places of privilege or power. Here's how he talked about navigating these spaces.
0: Well, I think on one level, I try to be—I'll um, say transparent and truthful. I don't—I I need to come up with some better phrasing on that. But I tend to be more upfront. I don't speak up on any sort of passing issue or sort of fleeting idea. But I think there's an aspect of respect for honesty. My hope is that when I speak up, uh, one, that people think, oh, well, you know, it must be important. Eric doesn't just share, you know, random thoughts. And two, he's not saying it just to be nice. Like, these are things that he thinks are really important. There are times when I probably should say things just to be nice, and I may not do that as much as I should. But at the same time, I think people recognize Eric isn't someone who just says things just because it's the polite thing to say. And so when I speak up, I think that then adds some credibility for, for people that have gotten to know me, that they recognize at least uh, an honesty um, behind the statements that I make.
1: And here Eric describes the skills and priorities that underlie his ability to code switch in this way.
0: I think a key part is listening and A more deep or recursive listening and trying to understand where someone is coming from and also get a better sense as far as how they're receiving, you know, what messages are are being sent. Being an advocate is an important piece of that. Being able to advocate in a variety of ways, whether that be you know speaking on someone else's behalf when you see there is an opportunity to sort of bring them in or highlight value expertise that they have, I think also being an advocate in the sense of speaking up when there is either an injustice or a particular a structural issue which is going to inhibit involvement. So there's times when I may not even know who I'm advocating for, but mm-hmm. I need to sort of speak up when I realize there are certain barriers that have been put, put in place that are gonna limit access or involvement. And so I think a, a willingness to speak up when that's the case. Perhaps related to that, but I think uh, a little bit more broadly, some skills related to communication. And communication in a variety of different ways and settings and, and approaches but being able to help articulate what priorities are and what are key considerations, being able to support those points with evidence that reinforces whatever that point is, being able to communicate in a way that is uh, sensitive to different perspectives or at least acknowledges different views. And there's part of that that I think is an ongoing process for everybody, but for me, in terms of not always sort of recognizing the words that may sort of be common to me and how they might be received or what might be appropriate words to use. And so I think there's sort of some ongoing learning, at least in certain terms of developing a knowledge base that can help with communication.
1: Eric emphasizes word choice here, and that emphasis is not uncommon. For many of our leaders, a key dilemma in code-switching for change is the code word of diversity itself. Our goal is to succeed at making diversity, equity, and inclusion-related changes, but the word diversity has become so loaded it risks failure at the get-go. One strategy is to avoid the word and emphasize related concepts instead, such as inclusion or broadening participation. Another is to lead with the word diversity and then load on the statistics to justify its importance. Code switching is a third strategy. Carolyn demonstrated this strategy throughout her interview and will return in a future episode to how she uses this strategy with other loaded words, like meritocracy, objectivity, and scientist. For now, though, we want to return to a segment of our interview with Carolyn that you originally heard in Be the Cousin, where she talks about the underlying dilemmas that inform the push and pull of code switching for change. I feel a huge amount of responsibility on me every single day on balancing where people are at in the organisation versus where I would like them to get to. Recognising that where I want them to get to is probably a 30-year journey and I won't see the end of it. Recognising that where people of colour and people with disabilities and other folks need this organisation to get to and my responsibility to them has to be tempered within me to what's realistic here and now by where the organization is, and then fitting that betrayal. I feel, you know, I often feel like I'm betraying one of these communities or the other because I can't get it right for both of them. And that is, that is incredibly hard to sit with. It's something that I try to balance and try to wrestle with every single day and is hard. Eric, too, talked about this push and pull, the strategies he has found that make headway and the ways those choices fall short.
3: Do you consider yourself to be a diversity person, one who does diversity work?
0: It's not something that I sort of highlight. I can point to some specific things that I've done, and the Gold Project is really one of them. I helped to bring someone to Virginia Tech's campus to speak about work that he was doing And uh, sort of received, a, I think technically it was framed as an award, but sort of it was just getting some funding from the college. And there was some sort of public recognition for that that, you know, relates to diversity and inclusion. I have worked closely with some doctoral students who that was uh, definitely a focus of their work in trying to figure out how do we uh, sort of recruit and support underrepresented populations And so I can point to those things, and if it is helpful for me to say, oh, yeah, I'm a diversity person who does diversity work, it's not a stretch for me to do, but that's not necessarily sort of at the forefront of what I highlight in terms of my work. What I frame a little bit that's close, but I I intentionally try to put forward more, is just this idea of valuing sort of diversity of thought and bringing groups and teams together, that are supporting and valuing those diverse perspectives. That does fall short at times in terms of connecting with underrepresented populations, but it is something that I think is is important. One way to think about it in terms of how someone could say, well, it's not really sort of diversity work. A mentor of mine has said a number of times you know, that people have sort of... Um, I can't come up with it exactly, but the basic idea is something along the lines of more diversity between the ears than sort of outside. I mean, that there's, you know, within our brain, there's a lot of diversity and that sort of thing. I think that can fall short of where we need to be with recognizing how people's different experiences because of the groups and populations they're coming from make a big difference. But I do really value, no matter what group I'm part of, saying the diverse perspectives that people bring are part of the strength.
1: So what we hope you've seen in this episode is that code switching is more than a strategy for entering or surviving within a space. It's a strategy for making change. But at the same time, code switching is also not quite a strategy. If anything, it's a string of imperfect strategies, each of which would fail on its own, but that somehow together help us find our way forward. Because it's so embedded in our identity and experience, code switching is also incredibly personal and situational, informed by our unique vulnerabilities and capacities, and requiring ongoing learning, reflection, and growth. It's a very tall order. But when a leader can do it, leaders for broadening participation use code switching to help others see and move across the boundaries of knowledge and experience and power, and to redraw the existing boundaries changing access and understanding and guiding us all into new experience and possibility. And they help us understand and sometimes reclaim the meaning of words themselves. In the next episode, we take a look at what we must understand about love if we are to succeed at broadening participation.
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation. Copyright 2018, Cardia Group LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspects of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.